welcome to part two of the fourth quarter podcast with Roger Blackmore. And let's get right into it. Without further ado, here is Roger. Okay, thanks, Domingo. So, hey, here we go. In our, in our first part, I outlined basically uh, what I envisage with the, with our podcast, why I'm doing yet another podcast. Uh, and basically, it comes down to this, is recognizing that uh, at, at almost 70 years of age, if my life was a football game, um, I'm in probably late into the fourth quarter. And uh, you know something, I guess I probably have learned a few things along the way. So the idea here is to share with you some lessons I've learned from late in the fourth quarter of my life and also of uh, almost 50 years now of pastoring as well. <clears throat> so literally what we're going to do um, through, throughout is, is to work through some of the lessons that I've learned. And I really wanted to start today then after last week's introduction with um, with lesson one. So uh, the number one lesson I'd say that I've learned in life is to live your passion. I love a statement made by John Bon Jovi where he says this, nothing is, imp- is a- let's start that again. <laughs> nothing is as important as passion. No matter what you want to do with your life, be passionate. You know, when I look back, I I like to think that I wasn't too different from any other adolescent during that particular period of my own life. Uh, to steal the title of Robert S. McGee's best-selling book, those years for me, like so many that age, were indeed the search for significance. You know, there's some interesting theories about how birth order impacts a child. And, and while I'd never use any of those to try to categorize every individual I meet. It seems to be abundantly clear that in many cases, they do hold true. I was the fourth child. My parents were married on Boxing Day in 1938. Now, for the uninformed in the UK, December the 26th is Boxing Day, the day right after Christmas. And I guess with what was probably a very simple service, my parents were married at the Providence Chapel, which was just across the road from the tiny row house in Northern East Street, Exeter, that my mother had grown up in. I never met my grandmother. She died young. So my grandfather raised his five daughters alone, which is a remarkable achievement by anybody's standards. Apparently, the wedding was scheduled for Boxing Day because there'd be plenty of Christmas dinner leftovers still in the house. And the family just walked back across the narrow cobblestone street after the ceremony. A fancy, re- a fancy reception was, uh, was out of the question because when you're providing for a family on the meager income of a guard on the Great Western Railway, it wasn't going to happen. My parents' first child, David, was born 13 months later. But developing their family had to be put on hold for five years because of what was happening in Europe and around the world in 1940. Everything changed for the newlyweds when my father got a phone call from Mr. Churchill saying, Jim, I need your help dealing with this Hitler blighter. Or anyway, that's how my father always told us it happened. Dad served in the Royal Air Force throughout World War II 
Most of those years were spent 5,000 miles away from home, outside Calcutta, India, defending that part of the vast British Empire from potential Japanese attacks and tending his beloved Spitfires. Hostilities over and, and, and back home, they apparently made up for lost time by having another four children in five years, bringing the final tally to five. And as I mentioned, I was fourth in that order. According to multiple sources, the impact of that was likely to make me loud and a comedian, which could well explain why I was described as relishing the role of the class clown when I was about 10 years old. My mother did not appreciate that accolade when it appeared on my school report card. So while I don't swallow all the birth order stuff hook, line and sinker, I totally get the idea that the reaction to a fourth child entering this world could well be, yep, it's another kid, rather than the universal shouts of ecstasy and unending celebrations that might herald the arrival of number one. Now, not for a moment am I suggesting that my loving parents thought less of me than any of my older siblings, nor did they treat any one of us any differently than the other. Except that my oldest brother had a motorbike at 17 and I wasn't allowed one. Of course, that could be something to do with the fact that David was a working man by then and he bought his own bike. Whereas at the same age, I was still in high school and looking for my parents to provide the said vehicle. But I still sulked anyway. All of this to say, whether it stemmed from a touch of fourth child syndrome or the normal insecurities that every teenager battles. When I started pastoring one month after leaving my teens, my primary purpose was still to be noticed. My goal was to build a big church, show everyone how good I was, and rise to prominence in the denomination I was part of. It would be several years before my ego was somewhat in check, and I finally identified what I was passionate about as my calling as a pastor unfolded. You've got to live your passion. In his book, No Easy Way, The Mission That Killed Osama Bin Laden, the, the author, Mark Owen, writes this, Don't just live, but live for a purpose bigger than yourself. Now, I couldn't tell you when I got to that point, but thankfully I did. You know, there are a lot of voices out there advocating the virtues of a balanced life. I'm sure they're well-meaning, but they're wrong. A balanced life is a boring life. And since we only pass this way once, far better that we devote all our energy to the thing that wakes us up in the morning and puts a spring in our step as we start every day. I love this quote from Steve Jobs' commencement address at Stanford in 05. He, he passed on this inspiring advice to graduates. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. Have the courage to follow your heart 
and your own intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. I love that. Because in my estimation, one of the ultimate disappointments in life would be to succeed in things that don't really matter to others and don't feed our own souls either. Long before I ever read them, I started to live by the words of economics professor Larry Smith, who said, find and use your passion and you'll have a great career. So as life developed, I became aware of three things that were my real focus and motivation. These are what I call my passion. I live for these three. And, and, and today and in the next couple of parts, uh, I'll, I'll explore all three of these as part of this first lesson. Live your passion. My three of these. My passion is faith. It is family. And it is helping the hurting. Of course, part of the reason I'm sharing them with you is that I think you'll find it tough to come up with anything that's more worth pouring your life and energies into also. I'm passionate about my faith. Let me talk about that with you for a few minutes. Karl Marx is known to have referred to religion as das opium des Volkes, which is most frequently translated the opiate of the masses. The full sentence penned by the German philosopher, is even more dismissive. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. In plain English, he, he believed that in the 19th century, religion created escapist fantasies for the poor. It was the way they found relief from the harsh realities of the world in which they lived and labored. Throughout history, organized religion has certainly provided enough material for the unbelieving to view it with a huge degree of cynicism and distrust. But those of us who enjoy a personal relationship with Jesus Christ would be quick to point out that rather than being an LSD trip transporting us away from our main mundane lives to a psychedelic world where all is peace and love, our faith is actually the foundation of our lives in this world and not a means of escaping it. But of course, there's a huge difference between being religious and being a person of faith. Growing up in post-war Exeter with the damage of German bombing raids still clearly visible and food rationing still a way of life, our family was often subdivided into three units. Parents, big brother, and then the four of us with just 51 months between us. My parents both had church connections when they were younger, but then had come the harsh realities of marriage, the war, children, and struggling to make ends meet. Sunday was not a church day for us as a family. However, on a Sunday afternoon, the four were dressed in their finest clothes and sent out the door to walk what was probably less than a mile to St. Thomas Methodist Church for the children's Sunday school. 
I think that routine served a dual purpose in my parents' minds. It ensured we received some Christian instruction, but it also provided them with a time to sit back and breathe without us rampaging around the place. I love those afternoons. I thoroughly enjoyed getting to know exciting Bible stories, being taught by some of the most caring people that I had ever met. When I was about 10 years old, I, I asked my mother if I could go to the main church service at St. Thomas Methodist. Life was different back then, and I'd leave home by myself every Sunday morning, and eventually evening too, to make my way to the huge brick-built church with amazing stone pillars throughout. I doubt if anyone but the minister knew I was there, and in reality, I've no way to tell whether he was aware of my presence either. You see, I'd, I'd walk in the impressive solid wood main doors into a main foyer, and then instead of going through the next set of doors into the main body of the building, I'd pick up a hymn book, walk up the stone staircase, and sit alone in one corner of the balcony. No one else ever came up there, not even the ushers collecting the offering. And when the service ended, I'd leave just as anonymously as I'd arrived. There was no great desire to interact with anyone else, but I loved the sound of the organ, the hymns, the prayers, the Bible readings, and even the sermons. Oh, and I made money out of it as well because I never gave my mother back what she'd given me to put in the offering plate. Even at that age, occasionally I'd be listening to the minister and thinking to myself, I'd like to do that one day. It was just a passing thought, though I do remember it still. But as the succeeding years have proved, it eventually came back to stay. There was another recurring feeling that I remember from those days in a corner seat of the empty balcony. This one's a little more difficult to explain. I usually phrase it something like this. All that I heard, saw, and was coming to believe seemed external. It wasn't personal. It was out there, but I was still looking for something that would fill a void that was inside me. That boy didn't know what Jesus told his disciples about the Holy Spirit in John 14, where he said, you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. But it really was the in you bit that was missing. I was missing something. I was missing personal faith. A personal relationship with Jesus. I didn't know it then. But the answer was right around the corner. Literally. Our family lived in a rented three bedroom, no bathroom, terraced house. Probably we call it a brownstone here in the States. In a maze of similar-looking homes that line narrow streets, barely wide enough for cars to pass. Which, actually, that wasn't a problem at the time, as there were very few cars in our neighborhood in the 50s. My parents were given the chance to buy the house at one time, but apparently they had no way to come up with a required deposit of $150. So they rented 6 Cambridge Street their whole lives. Now, I was a baby boomer. And as the phrase suggests, there were a lot of us. 
There were other kids my age living all around me. And in a simpler, safer world, we didn't need organized play dates. We played in the streets we lived in from morning to evening on long, warm summer days. The only interruptions came from bad weather or the mandated breaks to go home for lunch and dinner. I was frequently late for both. One of our favorite places to hang out and play cricket, football, or British Bulldogs, don't ask, that's too complicated to explain, was at the top of Brunswick Street, which was just around the corner from our home on Cambridge Street. That was an ideal spot for us to pursue our adventures because it was a dead end, so there was little chance of any of the admittedly light traffic disturbing us. We were also right outside my friend Dave Payton's house. Dave was a part of our group of neighborhood kids. He was a year older than me. Sometimes when it rained, his mother would let us all in and we play Monopoly or experiment with his father's prized reel-to-reel tape recorder. The first that any of us had ever seen. We were fascinated by it. One autumn Tuesday, as it was getting near to dinner time, which of course we called tea time, we began to go our separate ways. I remember asking Dave if he was coming out after tea, but he explained he couldn't come out on Tuesdays because he'd started going to his church's youth group. And then followed the two words that eventually shaped my life. Now, I'm sure they weren't looked upon as being earth-shattering or profound, and I'm not sure Dave would have any recollection of them. There was simply a caring question, or maybe a half-question, from one friend to another. Want to come? I said yes. And that brief interaction would change everything. The Assemblies of God Church I went to that evening with Dave Payton was a world apart from St. Thomas Methodist Church on many levels. The Methodist Church stood majestically on a main road, exemplifying the dignity and the formality that my young mind associated with church. But for my Tuesday evening youth group visit, my companion led me to one of the poorest areas of the city, to a very plain two-story building right across the road from what we referred to as a, a DOS house, a rooming house for the homeless and transients. And we approached the building from a dark cobblestone alleyway past stinking bins of chicken guts standing outside the locked doors of the Poulter's business on the other side of the alley. This was quite unlike any church I had ever visited before. Another key difference in Dave's youth group was the warm and f- warmth and friendliness of the people. I'd chosen to stay isolated in the Methodist church. No one knew me or was even aware of my presence. But Dave took me into a large room with dozens of other kids around my age and some incredibly dedicated youth workers who seemed genuinely glad that I was there and wanted to know more about me. In that room, I felt valued and accepted. Soon that church became my church. But more than that, it was through that church and my first pastor, Don Walker, that faith became personal and not simply an external observance. Pastor Walker always preached about the need to make a personal commitment to Christ and to invite Jesus into your life to be your Lord and Savior. 
That all came together for me on Sunday, May the 13th, 1962. We were on a youth retreat with teens from some other churches in the area too. And I decided it was time to have a little chat with my pastor about making a commitment to Christ. He showed me a Bible verse I had never seen before. It's in John chapter 1 and verse 12. To all who received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then he pointed me to another verse that I'd heard before in my Sunday school days. It's in John's Gospel 2, chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. In the distance, the bell rang to call everyone to the dining room for Sunday lunch, but our conversation continued, culminating in my simple prayer to tell Jesus I did believe in him, to invite him to be the Lord of my life, and to thank him for the gift of eternal life that I now received. And from that day to this, my relationship with Jesus has been the most important thing in my life. I cherish my identity as a child of God. I recognize that I was born with divine purpose and I know full well that God is with me and for me. I'm passionate about church. I've spent my life serving church. I'm passionate about the church I've developed these past 20 some years. But before all that, it's my own faith that matters most. You've got to live for your passion. And I'm passionate about faith. Welcome back. Um, you just heard lesson one. Uh, Roger broke down some really great stuff here. So we're going to do a, a short little Q&A just to pull a bit of it apart. Uh, Roger, I loved uh, specifically where you talked about even being younger and experiencing church in an external way and actually understanding that. Uh, and ultimately, you being introduced to a church where you got to experience in a deeply personal internal way. Roger, what would you just say to someone who's experiencing it just on the external end, but feels that hunger for a more personal, internal relationship with God? Hey, the first thing I'd say is I get you. <laughs> uh, because, uh, it's, it's, I mean, this is weird to me, because I was probably like 11 years old at the mm. time. But as an 11-year-old, it was like I was doing all this stuff. I, I mean, I was in church three times a day on a Sunday yes. and was thoroughly enjoying it, but yeah. still feeling like, you know, it's out there, and mm -hmm. and over the years of pastoring, I've I've met so many people, and yeah. you know, I've met a lot of people who are really good churchgoers, mm. who are like, yeah, you know, I go every week, or some go every day, yeah. and it's like, you know what? But I don't know, is there's there's something missing, yeah. and and it comes back to this whole thing that that God wants to have a personal relationship Amen. with us, Amen. and I think it's coming to the stage of realizing that you know we don't 
go to church to find God. We mm. find God, and then we go to church, and because it, it's a part of our, our our worship and it's a part of our relationship. Yeah. And and uh, as I mentioned, you know, earlier, for me it all changed when my pastor just showed me that verse in John one twelve mm. that for those who received Christ. So it isn't a question of what do I believe. Isn't a question of what do I do? Mm. Isn't a question of what's my religious practices or how often do I go to church? Yeah. The question is, have you received Christ into your life? And mm. that's as simple as he explained it to me. Mm. There was one other simple Bible verse that Don Walker showed me. It's in Revelation chapter 3, 20. It says, uh, Jesus said, I'm standing at the door and knocking. If anyone opens, hears my voice and opens the door, mm -hmm. I'll come in. And, and I honestly think sometimes when people are kind of, if you're at the stage where you feel, you know, there's something missing, mm. maybe what you're hearing there is Jesus knocking at the door. Mm. Uh, and the solution is to say, Lord Jesus, come into my life, be my Lord, be my Savior. Mm. And start very simply by recognizing Christ as your Savior. And then by starting to just communicate with him for yourself yes. in the simplest of ways reading the Bible for yourself mm. in the most straightforward ways and recognizing this is a personal faith that we then share in community, in church. Our faith doesn't come from the church. We take it to the church. Mm. Amen. Excellent. Another question uh, I loved when you broke down after your, uh, your friend Dave asked you to go to this Assemblies of God church and... Uh, the, the description you gave of the church you were attending at the time, the St. Thomas Methodist Church. And uh, I love how you uh, talked about exemplifying dignity and formality that your monk, young mind had associated with church. Obviously, we're looking back. That's a whole part of this, right? You're looking back at your life. But can you see glimpses there even then of, of the kind of church that you wanted to develop then? Because obviously you're young, but do you see that now looking back that even then your, your hunger that ultimately came for a church for unchurched, a church that's seeking to save the lost? Can you see that even then? Can I, I, yeah, I can. I, you, you know what? The, the, the blessing about um, my church there, what became my church in Exeter, mm. was, um, you know, it looked different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it felt different, but it's approached to so many things. You know, yeah. for instance, let me give you an example. Uh, I mentioned that we, we refer to it as a DOS house. Mm. which was a, a rooming house or whatever else yeah. it was for, but mainly for transients, like a one night stop or whatever. Yeah. So uh, a lot of the people who were staying there had, had a lot of other issues. You know, mm -hmm. they were homeless, um, but often, you know, drunks would wander into our service. Wow. So guys from there would wander in there drunk and, you know, Dom would be preaching and, uh, and, you know, it was a weird configuration of a building where actually the main entrance was actually, as the congregation was sitting, the, like the stage was at the front, but to the right was the main entrance. Oh. So the pastor's up there preaching and there's a drunk comes singing in on the right-hand <laughs> side. Yeah. I, and you know, I saw how patient and caring mm. Don was with them. I saw him I saw him take homeless guys into his own home, oh, wow. which was insane <laughs> because he had three little kids wow. and, and, and he was dirt poor himself. Yeah. And, and I saw a whole different approach to Christianity. Mm. And, and so, yeah, I was blessed to be in a church that was very different. Yeah. And, um, you know, probably because of the fourth child thing as well. <laughs> I, I, I'm wired to be different and to do things different. Yep. And, and, and I'm creative, like, in my approach to things. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, a lot of that started back in, back in, in, in late 1961 wow. 
when I went into that church down the dark alleyway with a stink of rotting chicken. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. And there Genesis was born many years later. Now we're here talking yeah. about it. Great. Um, so Roger, just to close up on a, a note, obviously uh, life is a little wild for everyone in America right now. Just a word of encouragement for everyone out there listening. Hey, I'm, yeah. I mean, we're, we're in the middle of the coronavirus thing or hopefully the middle hmm. uh, of the coronavirus thing right now. And uh I'm not complacent about anything. I'm cautious, and I'm particularly cautious because I would never want to do anything that caused anyone else to become sick. Mm. But the fact is this. I'm 69 years and nine months old. God's brought me this far. Mm. And to quote the psalmist, I have been young. Now I'm older. Mm -hmm. But I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his children begging for bread. And the truth is, God's got us, whatever we're going through, and God's promises are for real. Amen. I can't think of a better note to close on. Uh, remember, please, uh, if you're listening, whether you're streaming or downloading, make sure you're subscribing just to keep updated as we update our feed. We have loads of ways right now as a church um, that we are uh, reaching out and connecting with you guys. Our Facebook's a great one. If you search Genesis Church, Long Island will pop right up there. You'll know us by the green uh, G logo. Uh, we also have a website, GenesisChurchLI.com, where we'll be streaming our full service. Is that wrong? Genesis LI. <laughs> this is why I do this live. I Roger do, knows I do that. that all the time. <laughs> GenesisLI.com. But we actually stream our full services on there right now with this stuff going on, along with podcasts, videos. Um, we're doing a lot, and it's a really great way to stay connected, even though all this is happening. Any closing notes, Raj? Are you good? Yeah, stay safe. <laughs> stay safe. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and we will see, uh, we'll hear you. Hopefully, you'll hear us next week.